All right, we're in Revelation chapter 2 this morning, looking at verses 8 through 11. Uh, Last week, we looked at the mixed commendation and critique of the body of Christ in Ephesus. And this body, as we recall, was anchored to the truth, yet lacking in its principal motivator, which was its love for the Savior. We touched on something last week that's really stuck in my mind, uh, and that is the jaded nature of the church that can become resentful as its antagonists um, bring persecution and tribulation. And it's as we move from Ephesus to Smyrna, that thought was on my mind as I studied this text. And it's in this context that Paul reminded the church in Ephesus about the true nature of the battle that we live in. It's important for us to be reminded of um, the spiritual nature of the warfare that we are engaged in. Um, We often look at the source and become resentful and angry, but we need to be aware, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Remember that. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul also reminds the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, for, we, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The battle that we engage in is spiritual in nature, though it manifests itself in the flesh. Um, the persecution that that is being addressed to the letter to or in the letter to the church of Smyrna is real. They felt it. Um, and it was a multi-pronged spiritual attack that this church was undergoing. And that's why John writes to the church in Smyrna that Satan will cast some of you into prison. Now, is Satan the individual casting them into prison or are there other actors? Of course, there's other actors. But what John is reminding them is the motivation behind the persecution of the body of Christ is spiritually motivated. And it's coming from a very distinct source. Um, So as we think about Smyrna this morning... Smyrna is is under the threat of death, and they're in a different place than Ephesus. And there's no criticism or condemnation here to the body of Christ in Smyrna, which is contrary to what we saw with the book of or with the church in Ephesus. And it's important to note that their dross was being consumed as their gold was being refined. It is in this scenario that we find the church is in its closest state to what it ought to be. Think about that. When the church is under persecution and assault, it is in that scenario that we find the church is in its closest state to what it ought to be. Why is that? 
Well, far from the, the seven steps of your best life now, we find that the church in Smyrna is being ground into dust for Jesus Christ. And all the frivolous, the meaningless, the irrelevant, the chasing of shadows has been done away with for them. For the church in Smyrna, it was down to the rubber meeting the road. There was no time for them to waste. There was no frivolity for them to chase. Their lives were in peril as we find this text this morning. Thinking about how it applies to us, and not everything is about America, but I think about the context that we live in, the bubble that has been America. We have been so blessed in terms of our level of persecution that the church has seen. But I want you to think about something. Secularism has done its dirty work in our country, in our culture. And we were taught by the secularist worldview that pluralism is awesome. It's on our money. E pluribus unum, out of the many one. And what secularism has taught us historically is it's okay, and you are welcome to hold to biblical Christianity, so long as, what? You hold it privately. That's what secularism teaches. You can be a Christian. Don't bring it into the workplace. Don't bring it into the public square. It must be kept private. This is is emphasized by the separation of church and state mantra that we hear frequently. By the way, the modern errant intent of that statement was not to keep the state out of the church, but the church out of the state. That's what they mean it now, but that's not what the founders meant at the time. But that is the definition of secularism, which is to keep God out of the public square until he is no longer anywhere. And reading the signs along the highway as we, as we pass through history, it's hard pressed to find God in the public square today, isn't it? And if you bring them there, you risk great criticism. I saw this week there was a, a poll by Gallup that in all of the recorded history of Gallup polls, America now has fewer people that believe in the existence of God. We're not talking about how we define Christianity. And by the way, Ligonier does a great survey on where people's beliefs fall on the spectrum. But in all of America, less than 80% are right there at 80% um, only believe that, that God exists. What could be held privately and sincerely or sincerely, is now diametrically opposed to our culture's mantra of self-worship. And we're told right now in our current context that the ultimate right of self to be happy is the altar to be worshipped. Anything that stands in the way of that self-realization is hatred. We can't tell somebody that God's design for marriage is between a man and a woman, or that God's design for humanity is man or woman without being accused of hate speech. This month, the whole month of June is dedicated to LGBTQ plus movement and the urgency of our society is to bend the knee at that altar. If you work in corporate America, like some of us do, you know all about it. There is a constant pressure to bow that knee 
I saw an interview this week of a person who was transitioning and it wasn't just from one sex to another as if that were possible. It was into a wolf. And it's mind blowing. And we think, we think about that, the insanity of that, but here's why that occurs is because it is no longer objective truth. It is now my truth or your truth. And you no longer have the right to bring objective truth to bear to my truth because my truth is sovereign. The self is the exalted God of our culture now. And the Bible is reduced to clobber passages. As you bring scripture to bear in the public square, we we hear scripture referred to as clobber passages, meaning it's hate speech. We need to know that the evil day in our cultural bubble could be imminent. Smyrna is already there. When this is being written, and we'll, we'll talk about what they were experiencing in real time as a church, I want you to see that the church of Jesus Christ has always been under persecution. Since the Lord Jesus left his disciples and ascended into heaven, the church has been under assault. We see that in our study through the book of Acts. We have been the exception to the, to the norm here in America. But all around the world, Christians fully understand what persecution looks like. But here's the good news for us. The frivolous, the meaning, the irrelevant, the chasing of shadows, if you will, will be done away with, with the Church of Jesus Christ here in America. And we will be better for it. As we look at this letter, remember that John is writing from Patmos. Patmos is 35 miles from Ephesus off the coast. And then Smyrna, if you go due north, a bit northwest, we find that Smyrna is located 40 miles from Ephesus. So from where John writes the letter on the island of Patmos to Smyrna, less than 100 miles Um, Smyrna, for those of you that are tracking, is the present-day Turkish city of Izmir. I know you'll remember that. That'll be the takeaway from this morning's service. There will be a test. Just kidding. We find something very interesting, though, and that is that Asia Minor, um, where these churches are located, was heavily influenced by the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the work of the apostles uh, in the early church. In Acts chapter 19, um, turn there if you will, just to follow along. Quote, when, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he, meaning Paul, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. In Acts chapter 9, verse 26, it says this, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. So we find the establishment of the church in Smyrna very early on and was due to the spreading of the gospel um, 
in the book of Acts. So I have uh, three points this morning that I want to share. Point number one is this, an introduction from the Alpha and the Omega. And look in verse eight. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. One of the things that we see repeated as we go through these letters to the seven churches is that introduction harkens back to chapter one when we see the exalted Christ who is, as we just sang a few minutes ago, seated on his throne. And it's incredibly important as a reminder, and I'm amazed again at how our Bible study will overlap with what we're about to talk about. Um, the introduction to the church at Smyrna is, is like any proper letter. It has a greeting or a salutation. And so the letter is addressed to the elder or the elders of the church. I won't linger here as we spoke to this in detail a few weeks back as we opened up the letter to uh, the Ephesian church. But I will touch later on uh, on the elder of this church who is an understudy or a disciple of John's. Uh, when he was much younger, and his name was Polycarp. Um, we'll find, and history records for us, that he was burned at the stake in the Colosseum at Rome. So the letter is addressed to the elders. It may or may not have been him at this time, but we find that um, God's word is right on time here to this church Verse um, eight tells us who this letter is from. He says, these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This is taking us back to chapter one and verse 17, when it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, meaning Jesus, laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive ever, forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. Talked about that this morning. What is the picture of Christ holding the key of death and hell? We know that the key represents symbolically authority. Christ has, as the final judge, the keys of death and hell. This is um, incredibly important to the church in Smyrna. Why? Well, the primary point of encouragement here to this embattled church is that Christ is victorious over death and hell. He holds the keys. He has the authority as to who goes there and who does not. And this vital truth is an encouragement to this church as it goes through the fire, literally. In Acts chapter 2, 22 through 24, we find Peter preaching at Pentecost Peter says this, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Why? Because they were witnesses. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What would, where would we be right now in the history of Christianity if Jesus had done miracles but was never resurrected? Think about that. So when Jesus is telling the church in Smyrna, I am 
the first and the last. I am he who was dead and now alive. What is he telling them? What truth is he communicating to them? I am the resurrected one. I have the keys of death and hell. What do you have to fear? This church is about to face death. What is the most important thing that they can hear and understand in terms of truth that encourages them? God is sovereign over death. How do we know he's sovereign over death? Well, in the words of this message from Peter at Pentecost, he reminds them that they're, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. We have nothing on which to build our hope and the basis of our, of our salvation if there is no resurrection. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. First Thessalonians 4, verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Does the resurrection matter? Absolutely. The resurrected Christ is a primary encouragement for us. He is, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits. He's the protos. He is the forerunner. And Peter in that sermon at Pentecost reminds them we do not have to fear because he has gone there before us and has been victorious over death on our behalf. Is that a comfort to us when we face death? I think it's our only comfort, our primary comfort, our most important comfort. Secondly, our introduction says he is the first and the last. Well, how does that apply? Well, back to the sermon at Pentecost, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You have crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here we have the biblical tension of the responsibility and the guilt of sinful man and the sovereignty of God. Both are true. And here's the truth for us. Lawless men will do bad things. And they will do bad things to God's people. And they will be held accountable. One of the encouraging themes throughout the book of Revelation is the judgment of the wicked and their persecution of the church. They will be held accountable. But everything that happens to the church in terms of persecution and affliction has to be seen in the, in the, from the lens of a sovereign God. Spurgeon said this, the sovereignty of God is a pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. I want you to understand that, that Scripture tells the truth. And I, I referenced our best life now. It's a lie. It's a lie. What does Scripture tell us about this life now? Let me give you a couple examples. Acts 14, 22. This was the disciples confirming, or the apostles confirming disciples. And they said, through many tribulations, what? We must enter into the kingdom of God. Not you're going to have it easy. If you play your cards right and follow these seven steps, you'll have all of the, of the fulfillment you want in this life. No. 
Scripture tells us the truth. What do we expect as Christians? 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? Yes. Yes. Will be persecuted. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, you might want to turn there. You're following along. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Who determines if it's necessary, by the way? Thank you. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You guys have heard me use this analogy before, but maybe some of you haven't, so I'll use it again. There was, when I was a kid, mom had her ceramic antique cookie jar, and it was Little Red Riding Hood. Everybody knows Little Red Riding Hood, right? You, every, well, maybe not everybody knows. Anyway. This was a cookie jar about so big, and to take the lid off, you had to use extreme care so that mom (laughs) could not hear you from the other room. (laughs) But she had this cookie jar up on the top shelf, and there was a reason for it so that dirty little prying hands couldn't get to the contents of the cookie jar. And I've always thought about that as I looked at that as a little kid, and it was always out of reach, and I knew there was good stuff in it. And how frustrating that was. And that is the perspective of the enemy of our souls. For the child of God, our inheritance is out of reach. His prying, dirty hands cannot get to it. And when scripture says, and Peter reminds the church, that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Well, who does the keeping to our inheritance that cannot be defiled? Yes. He said, who by God's power are being guarded? Our inheritance is out of reach. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. The word tereo in the Greek is to guard, to keep, to watch, to be protected by God. It's not us that keeps it. As we look around this and we begin to see panic being uh, setting in at the financial market status that we're starting to see is the the Dow goes <laughs> and people are like <gasps> my retirement. I was thinking about what will happen to what we lay up in store here. We think about the fact that well, if I diversify, <laughs> like all the experts tell us, diversify. 
lots of different mutual funds. Won't that make our retirement savings untouchable? No. In the old days, people used to put their money under the mattress or maybe in a mason jar and dig a hole out back. And you think, well, that's a great way to save your money because nobody knows it's there. Well, guess what inflation does? Without ever going to your mattress or the jar in your backyard, it taxes that money all over again. What you think is untouchable and out of reach is being taxed again as it lays there under the dirt. Nothing in this life is untouchable. Nothing in this life is secure. And it's incredibly vital that we see the suffering and the persecution that comes to the church as the providential hand of God to refine us and purify us. Because if we don't, when the day of evil comes to you and I, we will be undone. Point number two. We have an encouragement in persecution, verses 9 and 10. The Lord Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty. We sing that that hymn, Does Jesus Care? Jesus is telling the church in Smyrna, "I, I care. I know. The word know is that intimate knowledge and understanding of the situation and nothing that happens to us is outside the sovereign hand and foreknowledge of God. He sees it, he understands it, and he has already made provision for his people in it. He says, I know your tribulation. This word tribulation comes up in chapter one. We looked at it back then. It's the word philipsis in the Greek. It means tribulation, oppression, trouble or affliction that causes pressure. And in this case, for the church at Smyrna, it had a very real outcome. What was that? Well, in in defining what they're going through, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and what? Do not fear. But what else besides tribulation does he say, I know that you're going through? Poverty. Yes, poverty. And the word in the Greek means just what it says here in the English, the state of being poor. It describes a state or condition wherein one lacks sufficient means. This was a direct financial burden to their profession of faith. This was not due here. Remember, there is not a hint of criticism from the Savior, the great shepherd to the sheep in this church. Their poverty is not due to laziness. They're not sitting on the couch at home waiting for a check to show up in the mail. These people are are hardworking people. Well, the reason their their poverty is mentioned here is because it costs them to be a Christian. We we hear it in, in our culture where we hear about people being canceled. What does that mean? Well, you can lose your job for speaking up and speaking out about something that we know is not right and is contrary to biblical truth. You can get canceled. That's what this is talking about. Your ability to take care of your family has been impacted by your profession of faith. But there's a footnote here. And in parentheses, it says, but you are rich. But what does that mean? 
How does God measure wealth? Is it our bank account? No. The Joneses measure it that way. God doesn't measure our wealth that way because he reminds them that in their state of poverty, because of the affliction and the tribulation that they're going through, that they are actually rich. Why? Because their gold is being refined. We touched on it in 1 Peter chapter 1 above. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's the wealth that Jesus is talking about, that this church possesses. And while they go through real need, physical want, The inheritance that is of incredible value is out of reach and untouchable, cannot be impacted by the wicked one. He says, I I see the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. I was listening to a message on this and uh, by Robert Godfrey, and he touches on this where some might read this and say, is this anti-Semitic? I, I got to admit, I didn't see that when I studied this, but the question could come up. But what he's talking about here are people that are professing to be Jews and are not. And by implication, they're not us. Gill says this, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not. That is those who asserted themselves to be the true Israel of God. Jews that were so inwardly regenerate persons or truly Christians for the Christians baptized persons were by the heathens called Jews, but these were not. They professed Christianity in words, but in works denied it. They were men of bad principles and practices and both blasphemed the way and the doctrines of Christ themselves and caused them to be blasphemed by others. Also, these were false Christians, nominal professors, and shun persecution of the gospel or for the gospel who were not what they should be or or not what they would be thought to be. These were the brochures of heresies in this period of time in which there was a multitude of them, in which chiefly respected the doctrine of the Trinity and the person of Christ, and they were introducers of pagan and Jewish rites into the church and were men of phlegitous, Here's a new one. Phlegitious, meaning sinful or immoral. There's a new word for you. Phlegitious. Lane, it's probably in your book, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm being told, I'm getting report outs as as Julie proceeds and all the the vast use of the English language that you use. So well done. (laughs) Phlegitious, so there's a, a, a new one. Sinful and immoral their lives and conversations, and paved the way for that man of sin. Um, This is what Paul says regarding the same situation in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel, what? Belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise 
are counted as offspring. John, no doubt, had to have this passage in mind as he's penning this. In John chapter 8, verse 31, we find there Jesus conversing with those Jews who the scripture says had believed him. Now, they're obviously not converts, but Jesus, because he is working these miracles, um, he is of Jewish heritage. There had to be an entourage that followed him that were nominal disciples, if you will. And Jesus confronts him in verse 31 of John chapter 8. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. I don't know how they forgot about Egypt, but they're not here to argue with. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. And this is where it gets really close to home. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Now, is Jesus asking that question because he doesn't know the answer? That is a rhetorical question. Why do you not understand what I say? Here's the answer. It, and it's not, is it? He says, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear me is that you are not of God. Fast forward to verse 59. They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So Jesus here is directly confronting those professors to be followers of him who are physical lineage of Abraham and yet have no knowledge of the truth. And Jesus rightly knowing them tells them that they are their father, the devil. And we find as we go back to the letter to the church in Smyrna, the next statement is John says, 
They are of the synagogue of Satan. <clears throat> An interesting statement, the word synagogue is the gathering together. These are people that gather together that are Satan's followers or children. Now, the question that comes up in my mind is, did they know that? Probably not. As you see the, the Pharisees conversing with Jesus and talking and bragging about the fact that they are descendants of Abraham, they are lost in the fact that their physical lineage somehow gives them a ticket to the graciousness of God. And they were blind. And Jesus confronts them with a hard truth that in our context today would be called hate speech. Not only are you not Abraham's children, but you're, you're children of Satan. We see the same thing echoed here. Jesus knows the enemies of the church. And again, he reminds them. It's incredibly important for us to understand. The opposition to the truth of God's word comes from where? Is it somebody's personal animosity at me because I'm a Christian? No. Why is the church opposed in this world? There is a reason. We're the ones that Satan can reach. And so he does everything he can to attack the church. But just a reminder, one of the attackers of the church that we find in Scripture was a man by the name of Saul. Do you remember what Ananias did when Saul was converted? He had that, that jaded, mm, Lord, do you know what he's been doing? And what did the Lord remind him? Go see him. He is praying. If Ananias had not been forgiving in that moment in time, who would have gone to pray with Paul? So we need to remember that the, the people that, that come against the church in animosity and hatred to the body of Christ are often former versions of us. And how we respond to them is incredibly important. Paul reminds the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Who is your dad, by the way, church at Ephesus? Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in what? The sons of disobedience, among whom also we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature the children of what? Wrath, like the rest of mankind. It's incredibly important to remember the spiritual motivation that comes against us as individual believers and against the church more broadly is spiritually motivated. And we would be doing the same exact thing, if not for the grace of God. The net result of that sometimes is that we do what? We fear. Immediately, Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, do not fear. Don't be afraid. What you are about to suffer. Jesus is telling them the truth. He doesn't say, you know, things are going to get a little rocky. Buckle up. No, he says, he, he's very specific. Don't fear what you are about to suffer. The word suffer there means to experience physical, mental, and spiritual pain or suffering, anguish. Gill says this, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. 
God's people undergo sufferings of various sorts as the Christians of those times did, scourgings, imprisonments, confiscation of goods, and death itself in various shapes. And these are certain. They shall suffer them. They are all known beforehand to Christ. And he sometimes gives his people previous notice of them. Nor should they indulge in a slavish fear about them. It is reported to Polycarp, bishop of this church in Smyrna, in a letter written by the church itself that three days before he suffered, he dreamed on his pillow on which he laid his head that his pillow was on fire. Upon which awakening, he said to those that were by him that he should be burnt for Christ. And when he came to suffer, as he was led along, a voice was heard by the bystanders, Polycarp, be strong and play the man. There was a a message for us, a Father's Day message. And guys, just because we don't have children does not make us less men. But if there were a Father's Day admonition, while our culture looks at pilots of F-16s as the epitome, and I am not by any ways diminishing the sacrifices of our of our military in terms of protecting our freedoms, but I think about heroes that make a difference that we never hear about. When was the last time you heard about the pastor at the church in Smyrna, whose name is Polycarp, who, when they came to get him, the church, the church members encouraged him to go out into the country and hide. And after much convincing, they finally talked him into it. Rome found him because they tortured two of his parishioners until they would tell the Roman guard where he resided. He was laying on his bed when they came to find him. And he heard the commotion. He comes downstairs and realizing that they have essentially a warrant for his arrest. He said, guys, he probably didn't say guys, but he said, guys, let's have dinner. And he fed that entire Roman guard that came to take him to burn him at the stake. And he said, you will do this for me. Give me one hour to pray. Unbothered. He prayed for two. And as they're hearing him, there are witnesses in that church that that write in that letter, there are men that repented of coming to take him away because they heard his prayer. What was he praying? Ligonier comments on this in an article. They said, after the Apostle John's death near at the end of the first century AD, the church continued to grow numerically. But there is a period of little theological development. Many of the earliest post-apostolic writings lack the biblical insight and theological depth that we find in the works of later church fathers, such as Irenaeus, Athanasius, or Augustine. Early church leaders were occupied, listen to this, with the task of helping the church survive in an increasingly hostile Roman Empire. And they did not have the time or resources for plumbing the depths of Scripture as those who lived only a few decades later. Think about where we are. What excuse do we have for ignorance of God's word? We think about, oh, I don't have time. These men didn't have time to sit down and write theses 
on, on different doctrinal positions of Scripture because they were trying to protect the church and keep alive. It continues, we are referring to the first half or so of the second century, and proof of the difficulty that the early church faced is readily seen when we consider Polycarp, perhaps the most famous martyr of the immediate post-apostolic period. Polycarp served as a bishop of the city of Smyrna, and he enjoyed the respect of many lay people and fellow bishops for two reasons. First, Polycarp was renowned for his compassion and his pastoral care. Second, when Polycarp was young, he knew the Apostle John personally. In addition, Polycarp was friends with Ignatius of Antioch, an important early church leader who himself was martyred early in the second century. Polycarp also taught an important early church father named Irenaeus, who led the fight against the Gnostic heresy. Much of what we know about Polycarp's death comes from the second century work titled The Martyrdom of Polycarp. This work offers an eyewitness account of the bishop's death at the hands of the Romans, and it is something of a guide as to how Christians are to face martyrdom, martyrdom should that be their end. Unlike heretics of the time or many of the later crusaders who believed that death during a crusade would guarantee salvation, Polycarp did not seek out martyrdom. He did not hold to the assumption that says dying as a martyr automatically gives one a ticket to heaven, which is merely an extreme form of works righteousness. Even though Polycarp said that Christians should not go looking for martyrdom, his example does show us that martyrdom must be embraced when the only alternative, listen to this, martyrdom must be embraced when the only alternative is to deny the faith once delivered to the saints. When the Romans arrested Polycarp and took him to an arena for public execution, they offered to spare the elderly bishop, who was at that point in his early 80s, if he would renounce his faith and worship Caesar. Polycarp refused, for he treasured Jesus more than his own life. Thus, he was put to death by fire and sword. The Romans ordered Polycarp to curse Christ, and he responded, quote, 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? If you vainly suppose I shall swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you say, and pretend you do not know who I am, listen plainly, I am a Christian. As they were leading him to the stake, there were Witnesses that said his response to them as they were about to nail him to the stake is, don't waste an ounce. I'm not going anywhere. I'll stand at that stake by the grace of God and suffer for him. That's a man. That is a man. So what is able to silence our fear? It is only the knowledge that Christ has surpassed death itself and that we are safe in the midst of suffering. The letter continues, behold, the devil, the adversary, the diabolos, the slanderous one, the leader of fallen angels is about to throw some of you in the prison that you may be tested. We spoke about the spiritually motivated warfare that we see against the church and we must recognize the fact that Satan is the great counterfeiter, and Satan will use means to accomplish an end. 
In the case of Polycarp, he used the Roman government. But it was in this case that professing believers um, gave up Polycarp as the sword was wielded by the state of Rome. It, said, it makes an interesting statement here. It says, and for 10 days you have tribulation. There's a lot of debate about what the 10 days meant. Um, was it a literal 10 days? I don't believe it was. Because remember, the book of Revelation is literally symbolic in many ways, right? Satan directly putting people in the jail. Um, as I said, he uses means. But I think the 10 days is, is symbolic for a short period of time. Why is that encouraging? Well, if Jesus would have told the church at Smyrna, Satan's going to cast you into jail indefinitely. That would have been harder to hear, wouldn't it? But he says it's, it's going to be for 10 days. Why don't I think it's a literal 10 days period of time? Well, because it would have taken longer than 10 days to get the letter from the island of Patmos to Smyrna, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected, subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Jesse reminded us this morning. For in this hope we were saved. He continues in the letter, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Was Polycarp faithful right to the end? Word faithful means trustworthy, trusting, believing. You know, it brings up a very important question. Put yourself in that man's shoes. Can you listen to that and not do that? And the natural question that comes up is how can I be faithful? If faced with that, how do I not melt like a wax candle? How would you answer that? Christ is faithful in this. Yes. Jesus tells his disciples again, letting them know what's coming in Luke chapter 12, verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges or bears witness of me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And listen to this. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers 
and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. How can I be faithful? Well, the answer is simply this. If the Holy Spirit indwells you and you have been born from above, the Spirit of God will give you the grace at that moment. And I can only imagine what Polycarp prayed for for two hours before they took him in bonds to burn him. Do you think he asked for the enabling grace of God? The encouragement for us is that we need to rest in the fact that God's grace and the enabling of the Holy Spirit will sustain us if we are put in that position. If we think that we're going to stand on our own, we're fooling ourselves. Point number three, lastly, the promised blessing. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He that has an ear to hear, who is that? Is is Jesus saying to the church in Smyrna, if you have two ears on your head, you will hear? No. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What did Jesus say to the unbelieving Jews in John chapter 8. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason that you do not hear them is that you, what, are not of God. So when Jesus says, he that has ears to hear, who is he referring to? Those that hear the voice of God. This is to the believer in the church. There were some that that were standing there as that letter was read to the body in Smyrna. No doubt. The reason you do not hear them is you are not of God. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? Well, that question is much easier to answer considering our Bible study this morning, isn't it? Revelation 26, 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. We'll get to that, but I believe that's talking very distinctly about regeneration. Over such the second death has no power, but they will, they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation twenty fourteen. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And then Revelation 20, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus is reminding the church, for those of you that are victorious, that conquer, you will not be touched by the second death. What death should we fear? 
there's a first death, which is the separating of our physical body from our soul. Is that the one that we should be afraid of? We spend a lot of time being afraid of that one. Jesus doesn't even touch on that other than the fact that Satan is going to put you in, in jail, be faithful unto death. That is the first death. But the ones that conquer will not be hurt by second death. That's the death to fear. And this morning we have an encouragement to stand firm, to remain faithful no matter the circumstances. And for the believer, we have the assurance that a faithful Savior will keep us through the fire and bring us home shortly. We have the promise of victory as enabling grace sustains us to the end. For the child of God, the victory is already secured. That's what Jesus is telling the church in Smyrna. You are, all, you are already victorious because they're going to put you into prison and they're going to kill you. And then what? What? To be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. A short time, a short time, your life will be taken, you will be imprisoned, you will be tortured, but all eternity you have because you're victorious because of what Christ has done on your behalf. And for the unbeliever, the impending fear of the second death and a promise from a holy, righteous God that he will mete out justice and the unbeliever will be given over to fire for all eternity unless there is regeneration and repentance. The reoccurring thought this morning as we study God's word and we think about the Bible study is the urgency. If you're listening this morning, think about the urgency. I read a quote, coincidentally, by J.C. Ryle, where he says, there is nothing more important in this life than preparing for eternity. Second death is what we need to be concerned about. And for a man that comes to the wedding table without the robe of Christ's righteousness, Scripture says he will be cast into outer darkness where, where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Question this morning for each one of us is, are we clothed in the righteousness of Christ? If we are, we have nothing to be afraid of. We're kept. Our inheritance is incorruptible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign. We're reminded, Lord, that that is what we need to lay our heads down at night. That is the, the truth that encourages us. We know that nothing will happen to the church apart from your sovereign hand. And Lord, every ounce of suffering that the church, your body experiences is for, for their good and your glory. We ask that you would help us to be faithful unto death, no matter what circumstances we might face. Help us, Lord, not to be deniers of you, but confessors of you. Father, I pray that if there are any here that do not know you, would understand that they are in peril of a second death, and they would cast themselves on you for your mercy. We ask that your word would not return void, Lord, but that those that have ears to hear would hear. 
We ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen.